1: Hello again. Welcome to the game podcast from the Times. I'm Hugh Wilsoncroft. And today we get to put the conversation around Gareth Southgate, Jack Grealish and England into hibernation for a full five months. So we'll round things up after this international break. We'll talk uh, Derby County as well. They've got new owners on the horizon, but will John Terry or Wayne Rooney step into management with the club? Uh, We'll also look back on a decade of ups and downs for the Venkies as Blackburn's owners and as the Premier League returns with a couple of massive games we'll look ahead to those as well uh, to help me through it all Jonathan Northcroft Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson good morning guys how you doing very well Hugh thank you very much reveling in another massive massive
2: success for Gareth and the lads last night superb <laughs> performance from the boys <laughs> faultless in attack brilliant in defence superb system absolutely brilliant nothing to complain about that's at enough all.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you said brilliant in defence, you know, I can't remember them having to do anything at all, to be honest. They were probably holding hands at the back, doing Morris dancing, but um, Iceland weren't at their best. We'll come to that in a moment. But we thought because Jonathan Northcroft is here for the first time since Scotland's success in reaching Euro 2020, he might. You know, have the floor to tell us what his emotions were like on the evening. <laughs> well, I mean, for Scotsman to actually have a whole lot of emotions
3: is quite unusual sometimes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was overcome last week. I, I I had feelings that I haven't felt for a long time. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, as an Aberdeen supporter, my club's been kind of crap for 30 years. And my country hasn't qualified for anything for 22. And I think I'd forgotten what um, just feeling successful was like as, and, and being a fan and just uh, just having something to celebrate uh, I, I was um my kids were in bed and i think i woke both of them twice once um in the 90th minute when uh serbia equalized uh, i kicked a chair over and then um during the penalty shootout i made a sort of sort of different set of noises um it just feels incredible it feels like um a huge burden has been lifted um, it, it, I think the most important thing is that we 've played really well you know when, when, when the dust settled, and I thought about it the next day, I thought you know Scotland have got there, but they haven 't just got there by chance by luck um, we 've gone to serbia we 've played a really good team, and we 've actually outplayed them we 've handled the pressure we 've got a team that 's getting better. And we can do something next summer. I mean, and I'm not trying to wind anyone up, but when you look at the, the fixtures of the, um, the group, Scotland have got it set up really nicely for Scotland to win that first game. England clearly to lose to Croatia, um, be under huge pressure coming into the second game. Little draw there, um, qualify, shaking hands with Croatia when we both get through in the third game in quest down south, but who cares for Scotland <laughs> <to> be in <laughs> there So life life's good. life is well, good. It, it's, it's all there. <laughs>
2: So, Johnny, how old are your kids? If you don't mind me asking, because it might be another twenty-two years before this happens again. Were you not, were you not tempted to wake them up?
3: Well, I, 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 I did get them to watch the penalty shootout before they went to school the next morning. They're, oh, they're eight oh, that's and nice. six, that's and nice. my oldest is um, my oldest is. Kind of, she claims to support whatever team has scored the most goals in any game, which is going to be prob- problematic if I ever let her watch Aberdeen v Rangers or whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, she's kind, you know, they can both support England and Scotland. So at the moment, um, they're sort of innocent, but they're going to have a tough choice next summer. And I wouldn't like to say I'll be guiding them, but you know, you will, you should be, be. <laughs> you will, you absolutely will, you definitely should. I, be. I mean, this, Christmas is coming up. There might be a few Scotland strips. Yes. Strike you.
1: now! Strike now while they're popular. Surely. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. You might have missed That's your it. your chance already, to be honest, Johnny, because Scotland have lost, lost the last two games. <laughs> Come on. So make sure they don't see the today, fixture. We? <laughs> well, I'm just saying. <laughs> you,
3: you. Yeah, that's, that's that's strangely reassuring. As Again, from the Scottish psyche, there's kind of something reassuring about that. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Um, you know, just keep thinking. We played okay. We played okay in both the games.
1: And, and that's the most important thing. You did. Um, and the funny thing is, Scotland's qualification for the Euros, you know, people were sort of befuddled and confused about the Nations League and, and how it all works and what the importance was. And generally speaking, the only good thing to come out of it that was obvious was that if you won your league, you went to a playoff. And that worked fantastically for Scotland. But last night, they lost to Israel, missed out on the chance of a World Cup playoff spot. you know. And actually, that was a massive game, a massive chance for Scotland to go into another playoff with a straight shootout chance of reaching a World Cup. Um, that hasn't brought you down at all? Oh, look, a, a little bit, to be honest. It was a, It was a missed chance, but I just think
3: getting greedy to be too down on it they might have celebrated a little bit too much after uh, after Serbia but who can blame them Gregor not
1: worried?
4: No of course just the same yeah I mean if you look at the bigger picture you know, we're at, we're at the, the closest tournament and uh, we would have bitten anyone's hands off for that uh, just a few days ago
1: All right well you're happy um, England fans Um, have been divided over the last international window. Let's call it that over uh, England's formation under Gareth Southgate, whether he had the right qualities as a man. And I know we've discussed it on the last couple of of pods, but England beat Iceland four goals to nil, a couple of goals in there and an assist uh, for Manchester City's Phil Foden. Great to see the way he was rotating in midfield with Mason Mount and Jack Grealish as well in a 3-4-3. But Iceland, as I mentioned already, were pretty lackluster. They had a man sent off as well before last night's result. Let's take that out of it. The back three formation for England had a 46% win rate since the last world cup. We got knocked out. Of course, 77% win rate with a back four, a more attacking lineup. Let's call it that. Um, And Gareth Southgate, he's answered plenty of questions this week and he seems like he is going to stick by the three, four, three. Slight change in personnel maybe worked for him. Mason Mount playing in a midfield role instead of Jordan Henderson, and he seemed to spend most of his time basically attacking the box like a number ten, which is not something that we would see um, Jordan Henderson doing, including Mason Mount getting a goal on the night. So I wonder if that is a key to how this formation might work for Gareth Southgate. Gregor, do you see someone like Jordan Henderson being left out?
4: You know, I said you know I said this last week. I think that. Um having someone who's more comfortable on the ball and more willing to sort of a bit more vision on the ball a bit more of an attacking sort of spirit if you will uh than Henderson and Rice. So really it's got to be one of them if you're playing this formation. Um personally I would have Henderson and partly that's because of his leadership. I think there are, you know there are other kind of issues at play when you're picking a team and Henderson is the leader in the England camp as well as as well as Liverpool's leader. So that's important. Um but having someone like mount i think mount is very capable as a number 8 like that you know he's 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 versatile he could play he could play wide in the front three he could play a number 10 he could play a number 8 but he's a little terrier as well off the ball so and he he can be disciplined so i think there is a future for mount there but i still stand by what i said last time in that england would, would look even better if they basically took one of their back three out and put another attacking player on the pitch. Mount could still play as a number eight and you would still have another attacking player on a pitch. If you look at England, England have got, the are being blessed with kind of the, their best attacking talent for, I, I can't ever remember it being this this well-stocked, really. Um, and no matter what formation you play, you're going to have two or three like, outstanding talents on the bench. So, As I said before, I think that trying to kind of shoehorn an extra defender and to make up for uh, inadequacies in that department, you know, I can see the theory behind it, but I I don't think uh, it's to England's advantage in the kind of, uh, if you're looking at the bigger picture. Uh,
1: Johnny, do you think last night papers over any cracks? I'll leave Tom because I know he's going to be positive, so I'll get the negatives out of the way. Um, Does it paper over any cracks?
3: I mean, the concern was the Belgium game, wasn't it? That um, is this what, is what this is what we always see with England—that in qualification or running up to tournament. Um, pretty good at putting the smaller teams away but you get these reality checks when England play the the the, the better teams they played well against Belgium but they were still still beaten and that uh, i suppose that, that that was the one concern out of this this last cycle but i actually think it was a positive cycle for for gareth um, the best thing he did and um, the formation is one thing i do agree I agree with gregor uh, in broad terms, but I think the best thing is trying to get away from that flat, static midfield that, that Gareth has played too often. Whether it's been in a in a back four or, or a back three, having sort of two sitting players, um, putting Mount in there, or putting Harry Winks in in, in the other games, or, or or putting Foden in, it just gave England sort of that that that, that extra connectivity, dimension. Um, that fluidity and then having Grealish or a player of Grealish's sort in the front line again, someone that can come back and play with the midfield, roam around a little bit. England just looked like they had a lot more pitch coverage, a lot more um fluidity, rotation. And, you know, in watching England for like twenty years, there's always been this issue, no matter what the formation, of just playing in sort of straight lines, you know, defence midfield attack and not enough connection between them uh, and whatever way he goes he's got to find a way of uh, of, of of doing that and it comes down to players as much as formations I think Saka I think Tom might want to talk about Saka but I think he's if you're going to play a back three you play wing backs you need attacking wing backs and, and that's what Saka provided I thought he he also helped give an extra dimension to England in the, in the games
2: I think I, I should also just say Following Monday's show, when I got a lot of abuse on Twitter for being a Southgate sycophant, someone actually called me, which I thought was a bit, a bit, a bit strong. Just because I thought I like, I quite like the system. A lot of what Johnny's saying there does come from slight tweaks between the Belgian game and last night. It's easy to just say, "Oh, he played a back three again." It wasn't the same system at all. You had the likes of Saka and Kieran Trippier, and if you looked last night, they were pushed so high up the pitch which then allows people like Grealish, Foden and Mount to rove around in all the little pockets of space in the central areas, which pulls people out of position. That is a tweak and that he deserves credit for that. There's also an issue with, if you then take that theory about those players playing wide in order to create space in the middle, if you, if you do that with a back four, you're either saying to, let's say Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford, you have to stay wide or if they start coming infield, your full-backs, your left-back and your right-back push up in order to provide your width, which then leaves you with two defenders and loads of space in the fullback areas, which we see in modern football all the time. Even great sides like Liverpool, that's where teams go at them in the fullback areas because Andy Robertson goes forward, Trent Alexander-Arnold goes forward and it's just whoever, I mean, it'll be bloody no one, poor Liverpool, they'll be left with... Fabinho and one of the youth players. But that that's that's part that has to be part of Gareth Southgate's thinking. And I'm not saying it's faultless. I'm not saying it's perfect. But that's where it comes from. And I think last night showed a bit of progression because it was using it was using that system to benefit. And as you say, it put Phil Foden, Jack Grealish and Mason Mount at the forefront of what England were doing. And the system allowed that to happen.
1: Well, look, it it was a brave way to play, but we seem really brave when we play against teams like Iceland. You know, the idea that we're going to try and play that formation against a better side is the one where we look lacklustre. You know, it's to play the same formation, but then saying, you know what, not Mount, Henderson, and not Saka, Chilwell, you know, it all becomes very safe, the better the quality of the opposition that England face. And I and if, if we're going to play like this, fantastic. Be confident about it, stick your chest out, play people like Saka and Foden and Mount in the midfield against a better side and see what you can do. Because as yet, he hasn't been brave enough to put those players in as a combination against a better team.
2: I think he might. And I agree that this this should come back to, you know, it's okay to beat Iceland, but what happens when we play Belgium? But if we do go back to that back four idea, when you play Belgium, you're either going to, you know, Johnny talked quite rightly about England looking quite simple, straight lines, no one moving in between the spaces, no one finding little pockets of space. If you're playing Belgium with a back four, your back four are probably going to have to stay roughly where they are, the fullbacks can't really afford to bomb on or we're going to get absolutely ruined on the counter-attack. Therefore, Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford, my de facto wink wide men, are going to have to stay wide. So you then become very predictable. You've got Harry Kane in the middle, two wingers on the wing, back four. And then it's relying on three players in the midfield to do everything. And in a back four, he's surely going to be more inclined to play Henderson and Rice. And for what it's worth, I put Declan Rice in, I've said this before, I put Declan Rice in the middle of a back three and then play Jordan Henderson. And then you can have two extra creative midfielders in your midfield, five, four, whatever you want.
3: There's one one thing I've been thinking about with England. If they are going to keep playing the back three, it doesn't suit Trent Alexander-Arnold. And I I do think he's such a fabulous footballer that you've got to try and get your best talents on the pitch. I, I wonder if he could play as one of the back three He's got a fabulous passing range. He's got a great football brain, and the thing that Harry Maguire was trying to do last night, you know, the the, the sort of attacking centre back, as it were, I could I could see Trent doing that. I could yeah. see Trent being the the kind of loose play, the loose one, loose head player. So, uh, you, so you at the stage now, we've back got three.
4: we've got Declan Rice a back three of Declan Rice, Trent Alexander Arnold, and what Deere or, or Maguire or something, yeah, 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 right. because England have got. I've not have not got many options at the centre half. We've now got like right back a, a, <laughs> a midfield. I know it, it is just, just play your is, best players in, no, their best, in their
2: best positions. It is funny. You're heading towards Mike Bassett territory here, Gregor. We're gonna play four, four, two, and that's it. No, but that in uh, uh, f- modern football is you know, I'm I'm not trying to be, you know, deliberately poke the bear here on the back three thing, but football is more about positions these days, isn't it? And roles. It's not about I am a centre back. You know, we see it across football in every walk of football, right up and down the pyramid. Players, modern players, play in different positions. They are a good footballer. That's the point. When Trent Alexander Arnold, we had those debates about, oh, you can play in central midfield. It's about being a good, technically gifted footballer who can play in lots of different roles.
4: I don't agree with that as a defender, I'm afraid. I think there are a lot of things about defending you need to learn about in a position. So, and defence is the issue that is England's biggest issue, biggest problem. But do so. you not think
2: you, But when you've not got that, do you not to think you defend as a team? So that's why when you're defending, you have a back five, if you like, and then a midfield in front of you, and so you become as a team hard to break down.
4: Yeah, but it's about having relationships over the pitch and and being kind of positionally intelligent and stuff. And th- there's a difference playing in right side of a back three and playing in a right wing back or playing right back in a four and playing on the right side of a back three there's a big difference to that so I I just I just think if England England are trying to cover up for their inadequacy at the back but then it's kind of preventing them from really flourishing an attack I think that's the simple equation that they have and I, I know which way I would go
1: I I also think one of the keys to this formation and we saw it last night was having a player like Phil Foden and Jack Grealish on the other side in that front three, you know, pl- players who could be playing in central midfield or could be more midfielders than out and out wingers, but also who drift inside and like to create. So you have that option. Yeah, as a defender, you're thinking about what what two things could they do? Could they try and go past me? Could they try and play a ball through? And that allows space for the the two wing backs to get into the box. I mean, literally into the box. Trippier and Saka were in the box when Mason Mount scored his goal. I mean, it's just like. That is not something that we've seen from this formation before. And if England can press on like this, I think Greg is right. uh, Gareth Southgate is hamstrung in many ways because there will always be excellent players left out of this team now, which means there will always be room for people like us and people in the media and football fans to say, why didn't you play X, Y or Z? Um, But I actually think we saw more of a, a glimpse into how this formation can really work last night than we have in the other games that England have played it. Gregor?
4: The pace that is not in this England team that could be Sterling, Sancho and Rashford. That transforms your, your kind of outlook and the way you play and the threats you pose in behind and the, just the way that a a team wants to play against, a defender plays against an attacking team. So none of those players were on the pitch last night. And you have now, you have crafty kind of creators like Grealish and, and Foden and you could put Mount in there. So you have, you know, you have, it's about getting a balance of those things, I think, but you've got to have enough positions on the pitch for them to, to be playing. (laughs) So I, I still think that's, that's the thing. You've got to, You've got to, even if there's a front three, you Grealish could be the could still be the connecting player in behind them. I think that is the England's best option.
1: Listen, we do have such a big say at IFAB. Who knows? Rules could change. Could be 14 aside <laughs> by next summer. You know, a lot of things in football. <laughs> Seven subs, uh, exactly changing at the moment. Seven subs a game, exactly. We'll, we'll find a way to get them all on the pitch at some point. I'm sure. Um, let's move on, though. We'll, we'll talk about the EFL. Two players with. Huge reputations as England players, though, um, and I'm sure one day we'll be calling both of them future England managers. Um, reportedly among the favourites to take over the manager's job at Derby County in the Championship are former England captains Wayne Rooney and John Terry. Terry currently assistant at Aston Villa. At Rooney at Derby County at the moment as player coach. Their bottom of the Championship at the moment, Philip Koku, has gone, and they are going to have a new ownership group a takeover about to be certified signed on the dotted line but in that position bottom of the league is it a wise decision to bring in not just a young manager a first-time manager even though they've got such great reputations as players um before we get Gregor's view on it from a player's perspective in, in in the EFL um Jonathan Northcroft what do you think
3: it well depends how good the candidate is, doesn't it? I mean that's that, that, that's the that's the key thing. And we're in a situation at Derby where um things are on hold until that takeover takes place. Um so at the weekend Wayne Rooney will will be part of a management team that will, will get a little chance to to show what they can do. Um I, I you know I think things have, have been quite good at Derby this week from what I understand that Wayne Liam Rossini Shea Gibbon um I've worked pretty well with the players. They're doing a press conference today. Um, they've been encouraged by how uh, how well the the the, the 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 dressing rooms responded, uh, how well they've been able to work together, and it you know the, the weekend's a chance for them. But it's a really difficult game. They're playing Bristol City, who have got the you know best form in the league, going away from home after the international break. So it's a tough start, but. Um, I think you know I know Wayne obviously from from doing the column with them. he's certainly got a, a remarkable football brain which you could see when he played um and when you speak to me he's just one of these people that can break the game down very simply and 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 quickly for you so he's got those tools to be a a top coach but of course he's he's 35 he's, he he hasn't done it before I mean, just, you just you just don't know the same with Liam Rooney is such an intelligent Lad's such a good talker about the game you can see he's got the tools he's got leadership qualities but again you don't know but they they will be get they will get their chance um i think for derby it, it depends on as i say the takeover and, and which way they want to go do they want to bring in a, a you know a big star um name from the coaching world will they want a, a star player and then you're looking at your Waynes or your john tays will they go down a different path nobody knows that yet um but Derby clearly need something to transform them. But I think I think the other thing to say is that you know Koku had had, had largely done a, a a good job in building foundations. He brought you know they 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 had to cut the wage bill and bring in younger players and and he did a lot of that. It's just the results weren't right. But I think he he actually put some foundations that someone can build on there. Um, we'll see.
4: I, I first of all I would say I would agree about Koku. I think. Um, you know, he had half the wage bill, and Derby is a cl- as a club, <laughs> it's never dull there. And some of the things he had to deal with over the last, you know, year and a half or whatever, the whole drink driving incident, he sacked the captain. Well, the club did. Um, that didn't go down very well, apparently. Um, you know, he's been very dignified. He had to bring through a lot of young players. Um, so I think there's two things to look at. I mean, obviously, it's the 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 takeover means that all of that in the kind of turmoil in the in the in the Mel Morris era, you would hope it's going to change. Um but you've got to ask whether it's a job that a young aspiring manager, whether they're a big name or not, would want to take. Bottom of the league. Uh, you know, we don't really know anything about the the the, the sort of eminent owner. Um we know he's got a lot of money, but we don't know, you know, wh- whether it's going to be somebody who comes in and tries to splash millions of pounds and sign you know, some Brazilian superstar or something, or whether he's gonna do it prudently. So there are lots of unknowns in this, I think. So if you're if you're asking whether it'd be a good job for them to take, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I think with all the kind of baggage that Derby have and um you know they're they're hamstrung in terms of sort of financial fair play things as well. There's a there's a lot of been a lot of issues at Derby over the years. So it'd be a difficult job difficult job for anyone to take, whether they're experienced or not.
3: Do you not think, Gregor, that I, I agree with that, but that the, a young coach has to take a risk. So this, the very reason jobs become available is because something's wrong at that club and there's never going to be a good scenario to, to take over or seldom. I mean, I, I thought Stephen Gerrard took an enormous risk by taking Rangers, but he's made a success. And, and, and Frank Lampard took a risk taking Derby because, as you say, it's, it's always been a, a kind of high expectation, um, turbulent club. I think if you're looking at at it in terms of a takeover, money to spend, and it being Derby County, you know who've who've got the wherewithal to get up from the championship. There are, you know, the bigger picture is it, it, it's an opportunity. It's the short term thing that any young coach has to deal with, which is you have to walk in on a mess to, in, in a mess and try and sort it out.
2: But there's different types of mess, aren't there, in any in any new managerial job. And it comes down to what your end goal is, or at least end goal for the season. And it has to be a conversation around Derby now as to what, whoever the new manager is, what their goal is, both for this season and then for next season. If the goal is, okay, let's strip this back, let's start again. We've spent a lot of money in recent seasons. We've come very close to promotion. We've gone for the big names, we've got they've signed a lot of players in the last few seasons. If it's strip it down, make sure we don't get relegated, finish mid-table, I think it then could be a great job for a John Terry or even a Wayne Rooney. But if the goal is right, kick on, we've got the squad, get in the playoffs, then it becomes because because everything you do is reflected against that, isn't it? So if you win win two and draw two and lose two it's, oh God, we're not good enough. Whereas actually that's just part of a transition period, isn't it? And part of growth. So, you know, the, the bottom of the championship, if you look at the bottom six teams, you've got Rotherham, Coventry and Wickham, which with respect to all of those teams, they've all done brilliantly, are big fans of all of them, particularly Coventry and Wickham, what they've done. But you would expect them to be around that area of the table, perhaps. You've then got Forrest, Sheffield Wednesday and Derby, whose fans some of which perhaps have loftier ambitions. And so you, if you're looking at those differences between those teams, the managers in charge of each of them have different types of pressure, don't they? And that has to factor into what type of risk you're taking because – and it all depends on that conversation. Do we know if there's – Johnny, do you know if there's any kind of idea or Derby on what that, what that goal is?
3: No, there's not. I, I, I don't think the owner, well, the takeover hasn't happened, so nobody's spoken to the prospective owners. But I think, I think where you're right, Tom, is it, it makes me think of um, Jock Steen famously saying to Fergie that the young Alex Ferguson, that y- y- you choose an owner. You don't choose a football club, you choose the owner. That was his advice. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Until, if you're Wayne Rooney or if you're John Terry or you're Liam Rossini or whoever, until you speak to those prospective owners at derby and understand what the objectives are as you say then you don't make a decision because if if it's unrealistic um and you you can't trust them to be sort of stable people then then you wouldn't take it but if
1: if they are then then uh, you know it's an opportunity i would find it odd if either is appointed which means that one of them definitely will get the job um (laughs) But uh, who, who would you prefer? Uh, John Terry has a a big reputation in football for many reasons. Um, Aston Villa are playing very well at the moment. For me, if I was here, I'd stay as long as possible because it seems like you can ride the coattails. It, um, looks like they're going to have at least one very good finish in the Premier League this season for for what we expected from them. He's also working with some excellent players at the moment, so, so why not? Wayne Rooney, I can understand it because I know Wayne Rooney is, you know image has been an issue for him and I think it's clear that he wants to get across that he is a football thinker that he has a great football mind he wants more people to, to see him in that light he's had a remarkable career I mean absolutely fantastic playing career um, and so why not take that into management uh, he does have the personality I'd love to see it because um, obviously as a Manchester United fan I'd love to see it because I think he's got the personality for a fight in a, in a relegation scrap he hasn't been in one as a player But um, although he is in one now, (laughs) it would be interesting to see if he can handle it as a as a boss as well. Um, But but you know, if I was running Derby County, I'd be looking for an experienced manager um, because I I I think putting a new manager, someone in their first managerial job, into what I can only see as being a relegation battle, you know, you're in the territory there of getting another manager by the end of the season if things don't go right by the end of January, you know, February. So. yeah, it's got to I be one of the a most big difficult,
2: difficult leagues as well, hasn't it? For, yeah. for any manager, not just this position in the table, but it, it's it's such a unique a mix. It's still it's still that, you know, you still have Neil Warnock at Middlesbrough doing so well. You still, that is still, but it, but it is, isn't it? You still have that as an owner, that is still the temptation. I mean, look where Forrest have gone. Forrest have gone for Chris Hewton, which you know, a reliable manager with a good track record at that mm. level and in the, you know, lower half of the Premier Sugar League. Good Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that is the, uh, no league is that choice as stark I think as a championship owner as to whether you go for a John Terry or whether you go for a Tony Pulis. That, <laughs> like that, it, 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 but it used it used to be the bottom of the Premier League where that happened and people would get sacked halfway through and then it'd be like right okay who are we going to ring Sam Allardyce etc cetera, etc cetera. but now it seems to be in the championship where that choice is the most stark between the two and if you then look at the top of the table the teams that don't, don't have those more old-fashioned, for want of a better term, managers. The ones that are doing well are the teams that have given those managers time. You know, like Steve Cooper at Swansea, for example, did well last season, brought in new players, changed the squad around, and he's doing quite well again. It's, It's such a difficult league for this to happen. I don't envy any young manager going in there. I mean, Greg. When you, when you were playing, did any of your, you know, obviously you uh, you bottled the idea of going into management and decided to come and <laughs> chat about chat about football with jumps like us? But did any of your, you know, ex-teammates and stuff, when they got towards the end of their careers, what was the chat around those who did want to go into coaching?
4: Um, it's very competitive, <laughs> ridiculously. I mean, it's kind of every year. You know, I did my coaching badges, and you you go and there's scores of players it's over subscribed every single year and everyone's trying to get the qualifications and it comes about who you know and and that's the thing that's that's why these players who have got such a big profile have always got to step up on on anyone and that's why they're getting the job essentially on the basis of their profile so yeah it's true it's a funny thing and that they you know frank lampard always said i it's not my fault that i'm that i'm frank lampard, essentially. And that's why I was given the opportunity. I have to now go and take it, and he's doing his best to do that. So, and it doesn't mean he's not very capable. But
1: it was all hard Tom, work, if you ask Frank. So, yeah,
4: I can't remember him says, saying it. it was
1: down to his, his reputation.
4: <laughs> but as Tom says, the division is so unique. It's such a kind of glorious hodgepodge of of massive clubs with with huge resources, and some with parachute payments, and others that are are uh, you know in danger of, of going going over the precipice and you know the old school guys have been there and done it before and one's looking to make their way in the game and I think really what you'll probably learn about Derby County and their their you know, future trajectory you'll learn a lot by the person they employ for the first manager they employ and if it's Wayne Rooney you know I wouldn't necessarily say you know that's going to be they're going for the for the star name and whatnot because Rooney has a relationship with the players and he's obviously very well respected there and he's and he's you know he's made quite an impact to Derby, but if they go in and point Terry or they try and you know sound out Pochettino and or something, then Howl. you're going, Oh, I would go, Oh, personally, I mm. think you know you need to have a think about what division you're in and what your ambitions are when you're at the bottom of the championship.
3: I think the, the, these are also weird times because of Covid for, for new managers to take over in that tough league. So, you got you know, if you, what a new coach would tend to do. You either go down the motivational route and you try and have lots of team meetings and take the lads to Marbella on a sunshine break or whatever, uh, or you spend a lot of time on the training ground and and you try and drill them in, in in with with your own ideas, your new 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 ideas. But there's so many games and and there's so many restrictions that there's not enough coaching time at the moment and they'll they can't even have meals together in hotels they can't they have to travel on on separate buses to games you know there'll be two buses or whatever going to to the game on um in, in bristol you can't take them away so it's, it's an odd time to take over as a manager too it's a difficult time to to arrive impose yourself on a new football club especially somewhere like the championship where as, as we've been saying, the challenges are relentless. So diverse, so many fixtures, so many different types of teams that you play against. Um, it's, it's a
1: really so it's, it's it's probably harder than ever to get that decision right for the club. Uh, we'll see how Derby County respond to this. It's going to be interesting because, at least at the moment, Wayne Rooney, Shea Given, Liam Rossini all there in and around the squad and they have the opportunity to see what they can do as a coaching team together as well. So there will be a bit of a litmus test for them from this weekend onwards. Um, new ownership group as well. I'm sure we'll find out about that in the coming days. That could go either way. As we're about to find out, we'll be talking about Blackburn Rovers next. Uh, but a reminder to enjoy more of our award winning sports journalism, you can subscribe to The Times and and the Sunday Times today, you'll get yourself one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. So, while we're discussing uh, football ownership groups, today marks 10 years since the billionaire chicken farmers from India, the Venkis family, uh, took over as Blackburn Rovers owners. Aside from the fact they appeared as a Bollywood remake of Pulp Fiction, they haven't been as bad as we thought they would be at first glance. Gregor, you have marked the anniversary in The Times today by writing about the past 10 years with Blackburn Rovers, and you've underlined some light at the end of the tunnel too.
4: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to kind of make too big a deal of that. There's still a lot of people uh, very hurt by the kind of the turmoil and the chaos and the And the damage that was done to the club, particularly in those early years. I mean, we've got to look at this. They came in talking about signing Ronaldinho and David Beckham and Raúl and and promising Champions League football, and within eighteen months they were relegated. You know, a solid, stable Premier League club, um, who a Premier League winner under the because of the patronage of of Jack Walker, you know, kind of bygone era uh, owner. had been relegated from the Premier League and then they were relegated to League One. Um, you know, so much pain and they've obviously won promotion back to the Championship um, since then. But it, it, I think <laughs> I think I spoke to several fans for this piece and and um, one, uh, Ian Herbert, a supporter of 50 years, a fan of the podcast as well, as it turns out. Um, he had a really good an- analogy really to kind of sum up, asked him to sum up the 10 years of if he could. And he said, it's like they took over a stately home, sacked all the staff that maintained it, burnt it down to the ground, then looked at the smoking ruins and thought, that was a bit foolish. Maybe we better rebuild this. And now they are slowly rebuilding it. But obviously there will always be people who remember that they were the guys who burnt it down in the first place. So they are are rebuilding. They have learned from the mistakes and they're too many mistakes to go over in this podcast. It was almost doomed from the outset in that, you know, a football agent, Jerome Anderson, uh, essentially brokered the deal to sell the club from the Jack Walker Trust to the Venkies and then was employed by the, the Venkies to run the club. He essentially, you know, he, he once said he slept at, at Ewood Park. He was there that much. And, and obviously he the decision to sack Sam Allardyce was the first big kind of mistake in employing Steve Keane who was Anderson's client sort of the whole fan base turned on Keane he was the figure of of hate for as a sort of symbol the symbolism of uh, of what the Venkies were doing to the club so so many mistakes and particularly in those early years um but Tony Mowbray the moment Tony Mowbray arrived in 2017 just before they were relegated to the championship um Every, they, really, every fan kind of acknowledges that that's, there's a line in the sand drawn then, and, and it's been a, a kind of gradual upwards curve since then. The year in the in League One was hugely restorative for them. They kind of they won games again, and they they remembered what it's like to be a fan enjoying sort of watching the football on the pitch. Um, and Mowbray's been there nearly four years now. Which when they employed, they had five men in the dugout in one in one season, 2013. Seemed like it was never going to be possible. So there's some stability now, and Mowbray's built a relationship with the owners. But it's whether they can ever be. There, I've said, and this is this could is such a one of the most remarkable stories in English football, really, of ownership. Ten years, so much pain and chaos. But could there ever be redemption at the end of this? That's the the kind of question I pose. And you know, as I say, a lot of fans will never be able to forgive. But if they were to get back to the Premier League, which is a distinct possibility this season highest scoring team in the championship they may only be 12th in the league but the you know regular watchers of the championship believe they are a good team this season uh, if they go back to the premier league could they be welcome back
2: who knows i think it's interesting isn't it you alighted on tony mowbray there in relation to our previous discussion about managers and things when you look at the choices they made in terms of as i said that choice between young they went for henningberg who was obviously a bit of a club hero a young young manager, fairly unproven. Then they went for Michael Appleton, who's obviously proving himself to be an absolutely brilliant coach at the minute. I can't remember what club he's currently at. But, you know, he didn't last very long. Then Gary Bowyer. So they make those choices. They don't work out. And then you have to go to a Tony Mowbray type figure who probably not just, you know, he's a bit more old school. He's the manager in the sense of he's not just the coach. He, He takes control of things and has a say probably off the pitch as well. But I do think it's interesting as well, Gregory. Your point with all these clubs and with you know the ups and downs, it is almost it becomes a relief when you get that relegation to a level you never thought possible, because it it allows you to it, that analogy you said about burning down down the house and starting to rebuild it. It's almost like a deliberate destruction because it then helps you <laughs> you start again. Because from a fan point of view, you then start enjoying it. You know, I, it's, I'm i not saying I enjoyed the five, six years we had in the National League, but it then just makes everything, for as a Lincoln fan, everything that happens after that is absolutely brilliant. And you, you know, so... I suppose, the one, even, with,
4: I suppose should, the one thing with Blackburn should, is they always remember where they came from and where they fell from. Sure. When they first arrived, they were a stable should, Premier League club. But,
2: but. but when, but, and also, you know, they've got in the even further past the memories of being Premier Premier League champions. So that's, that's another factor as well. But in the newer world of football, where the championship is so competitive and the football is so brilliant to watch, it, do they even need to aspire to Premier League status? Re- really? That's, you, you know, that's a fair it, point, yeah.
4: It's a fair
2: it, point. Do, given where they've been and the difficulties they've had, do we think they actually need to aspire to that? in the next few years? Can they not just yeah. enjoy being a brilliantly no. exciting attacking team, bring some no. young players through? Football has changed in the last 10 years, yeah. you know, mm. hugely, enormously. And
4: and although they're, you know, they're very wealthy people, the Rao family. Um, and, and there's also another context now in that, you know, you hear of the money, they're, they've, they've, they're 150 million pounds in debt to them and are approaching 150 million pounds. As I think, up to the, the last tax year, they, they, they wrote off a loss, or they they, they covered a loss of 18 million. Uh, they just put in another 6 million during COVID. So there is another aspect when there's Bolton Wanderers on the doorstep, Wigan Athletic on the doorstep, Burry who've gone under on the doorstep. They look around and think, you know, at least they're still supporting us. <laughs> and we don't really know why, actually. They've never they're not visited in, in close to eight years. I think the last time they visited, uh, one of the family was struck on the head with a snowball. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous tales, and and the, the vitriol and the kind of toxicity of the atmosphere was was, you know, who can forget the image of Steve Keenan kind of standing like this lonely man on the touchline, while Venky's out, Keen out was was reverberating around the ground, and then a chicken was released onto the pitch. It's <laughs> like you know, this is this is such a so. There is kind of
1: don't blame <laughs> the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Pure chicken. Not
4: yeah. the fault. <laughs> chicken
1: fault.
4: Chicken in the way. But now, <laughs> you know they're never gonna forget that. But there is a degree of kind of acknowledgement now that they are still here. And they're we don't really know why, but they're still supporting us, they're still funding, you know, covering these losses and you know, we're we're heading in the right direction again.
3: Gregor, did did you um do you know who's advising them now, because you know you mentioned Jerome Anderson, and I think one of the parts of the sad parts of the story if I feel sorry for venkis it's it just showed how much how many opportunists and how much greed there is in English football when someone arrives with a bit of money uh there aren't it's not long before um those people will rush in to try and take a piece of it, and you know you had as well as the s e m you know you had um shebby Singh um getting involved. The, the infamous um, Malaysian TV pundit who I think sacked Michael Appleton without ever having ever met him just left a letter on his desk one morning. Michael came to work and there's a letter saying you're sacked, Sheby saying, and he never met the guy. But you know he was he was running the club for a while. So it, who's who's running it now? Do you know? So
4: um, since December 2017, um, Steve Waggett is the is being the chief executive, and he worked with Mowbray at Coventry City, so they already had a. A kind of relationship and they visit poon every summer poon in india every every summer um they have kind of good good lines of communication to india so that has you know there's there's some solidity and you know off the pitch as well and behind the scenes it's not an ideal scenario they're still obviously never there um and it's not ideal having to communicate with with india but um Undoubtedly, he's someone who has come in and, and given a bit of reassurance and professionalism when, as you say, sometimes there was no one or they didn't know who was running the club. Um, they still have one guy in on the ground called uh, Suhail Pasha, um, I believe. Um, and but, but there's undoubtedly just much more harmony of the pitch. They're so badly advised by so many people over the years. And, you know, that's people wonder whether that's naivety or incompetence, um, you know, they're not stupid, they're, they're billionaires, but they were, they were taken for a ride in those early years and the kind of legacy of that uh, took a long time to, to
1: overcome. I wonder if it was just a case of uh, finally getting the message that slow and steady wins the race, particularly when you're talking about EFL football instead of Raul and Beckham, etc. But But um, yeah, I mean, the levels of debt suggest to me that if they do get back to the Premier League, you might see Blackburn put up for sale very sharpishly uh, so they can recoup some of that because uh, just, just the allure of owning a Premier League club alone, I'm not sure. Maybe in India, you know, massive sort of coup for your company. You just use Blackburn Rovers players to advertise your chickens again. And uh, you get all the money back in brandy, but there, there you go. Uh, go on.
4: Well, no, that was the, the you know that was no one really knows. They, they that was part of the the idea when they bought the club. You know, it was it was talked about that they were going to open chains of Enke's Express, their their kind of fast food chicken outlet in England, and this was going to be a part of the drive. If you're going to spend millions of pounds on a on a, an advertising campaign, why not invest in a Premier League club and it gives you global recognition, and obviously it just went disastrously wrong. Um, and, and there's also a kind of you know pe- they they never talk. That's the thing. No one really knows. They never communicate. They they never have. But there people say that that they kind of almost they feel it's kind of their duty bound to to to, to right the wrong almost. Or and they and they're almost kind of philanthropists too. <laughs> this is that might sound strange even when they've. When they've They've wasted so much money, but they, they do a lot of, of charitable work in, in India um, and I think they're kind of they in it for the long haul. So, you know, Blackburn in the Premier League, the question is whether they would they could ever be welcomed back at, at Ewood Park. Uh,
1: this conversation has led us to ask, who, who are the best owners in football and why? Tom, I'm, I'm sure you've had some suggestions from the listeners
2: yeah Creighton Stanley owner Andy Holt getting a lot of praise um, quite rightly for his work at the club Uh, and he's
1: always on Twitter which I like as well yeah he's very
2: very very vocal definitely Mm. he's he's worth a follow for any Premier League fans who don't Uh, Gary uh, who's a Villa fan praises their current owners uh, prevented us from going bankrupt uh, after Tony's ear backed Smith to get promotion and spent 250 million in the last two windows massive investment in the youth structure too Uh, There's also a shout-out for Andy Kilpatrick and the team at Rochdale. When you think about those clubs in the northwest Berry, Bury, Macclesfield and things, uh, they've done a fantastic job. Uh, And shamelessly, because I've not mentioned them for a while, I'm going to mention the guys at Lincoln City because uh, Clive Nates and the current team not only do a fantastic job, Clive is another guy who, if you want a, a glimpse into what it's like running a club in the Football League. He's worth a follow on Twitter. But I'm actually going to give a shout-out to our previous chairman and owner, Bob Dorian, who uh, was in charge of the club when we were down in the National League put in half a million quid of his own money to stop us going under, set up the structure of the club, which allowed investment from the likes of Clive Nates before the glory years of the Cowley brothers. Uh, And we owe an awful lot to him. And he's a great example of an owner and chairman who just genuinely really cared about the club surviving through very tough, tough years. Uh, You've so, got to
1: care to put half a million quid into a, a non-league football club, mate. Especially, I mean, that's, that's a...
2: Especially when we were as bad as we were when he did that, because let me tell you, <laughs> we were pretty, pretty crap. Uh, so, yeah, um, but lots of excellent suggestions. I'm sure Greg has got a few.
4: Yeah, I mean, every level, you, you know, you look at, if you're talking about the Premier League, I think Leicester stand out personally. Um, I don't know, Johnny might want to speak about them more. Um, in the Championship, Brentford, I you know they spent money, but they're very smart. And you know, they've done a, a remarkable job. I personally, when you when you think about what a football club is and what it should be, I think there's more than just spending money and doing doing well on the pitch. And I think Luton Town are one of the best in the country. Um not just because, you know, they they've come from the National League to the championship in, in under a decade, I think. Um they've they've got, you know, a smart smart young manager, Nathan Jones, they've got a really good recruitment policy and and that the, you know, James Justin to Leicester, Jack Stacey to Bournemouth, a couple of players that they've sold, um, but more than that, the the work they do off the pitch and in their community, and I've, one of the most deprived communities in the in in the country. Um, again, I mean, working working on inclusivity and and uh, you know, just trying to make the the club a beacon in its town. They've they've won awards for. Uh, they were highlighted in a parliamentary review. Uh, they were the first club to pay the the, the national wage, national living wage. Um, they gifted shares, the, the owners, the 2020 consortium, who rescued them from admin, gifted shares to the supporters trust, so that they always there was always transparency. They, there's a kind of broader vision there that they've uh, they've. Gary Sweet once told me, that, the, the chief executive, the better your community engagement, your supporter engagement, the better your team's going to do on the pitch. They believe the two things are kind of it's a symbiotic relationship. They think if you've got a happy fan base and they know what you're doing and what your vision is, you will do better on the pitch. And I think that is the, the results of that have proved that to be true.
1: I've had a couple of suggestions in myself. Peter says, I'll probably get hammered by some Watford fans, but if you compare where we were in 2012, despite relegation to where we are now, the transformational effect of the Pozzo family cannot be denied. And that's an ownership group that changes managers pretty much every other season. So there you go. Uh, this one, I know you're probably bored of the Leeds loving, says Nathaniel. You're correct. Uh, but Andrea Radrizzani at Leeds, him, Angus and Victor have done an amazing job of revitalising Leeds United and re-engaging with the City As a whole, 2020 isn't great, but being a Leeds fan, it's finally rewarding. You've had good times too, Nathaniel, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, do you know what? I I am always one. Maybe I'm just one of these people that's a bit of a naysayer or likes to say the opposite of what everyone else does. But I actually think Mike Ashley is a good owner. Oh, on! Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. on, on. (laughs) All right, he's certainly not as bad as owner as people make out. Let me just say that because... Whenever they've been relegated, he spent money, firstly. He spent a lot of money to make sure they come straight back up. So if you are going to get relegated, the least you can get from your rich owner is money to come immediately back to the Premier League. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And, second, and secondly, and secondly, he he has been one of the few clubs that has broken even or made profit in the Premier League. Over the last few years, so everyone says, oh, "Why haven't you spent this money and brought all these amazing players X, Y, and Z?" Well, because we would have lost loads of money. So, uh, uh, listen, I'm not going to tell Mike Ashley how to run a business, but if you're not losing money, which many clubs in the Premier League have done, then how can you be a bad owner? It's just because fine, speaking. Are,
4: because the supporters are depressed and the club has got no ambition. That's that's the that's, the, that's what football I, understand that. I understand that I understand that doesn't make you
1: for me that doesn't make you a bad owner doesn't make you a bad owner it just doesn't make you a, a great owner okay you okay. see what i mean okay. you know Violating. to be a bad owner you've got to do things really badly wrong to to fall in that into that category in my opinion and i just don't think he has you know he hasn't got a relationship with the fans they all hate him you know if, there are many many things that he could have done better in time of his in t- during his time in control of the club mainly he's a bad owner because he hasn't sold yet that's the only negative that i would say because he should have probably sold the club Time and time again, he's held on, but he's held on and he hasn't put them in like a Portsmouth lead situation where they've lost loads of money and fallen through the leagues. They're a Premier League club. So, uh, you know, as bad as being a Newcastle United fan might seem, they're in the Premier League, the biggest league in world football. And for me, that's not being a bad owner. What is it they say on Twitter?
2: RIP, you're mentioned. mentions. I was just yeah. going to say that,
1: yeah. <laughs> Hansel. Me, goodness me. No, uh, I mean, f- f- fair, fair enough. Is he that bad an owner? I can understand why in terms of the, the human relationship and those sort of things that we want to feel as football fans, he hasn't done great in that regard. But in terms of a business owner, he's done pretty well. So what, in terms of joy, football...
3: Uh, being able to dream all the things that we actually get in it for. Uh, he's, he's terrible, but he's, he's quite good at getting relegated and spell, spending a, a small amount of the, the parachute payment on, on getting back up. I mean, I think you've been brutalized by the Glazers for too long. Too. <laughs> I think I think Greg has said it. He's just taken away the, the, the ability of, of Newcastle fans of all people to be able to dream and, have a bit of fun with the football club he's he's sat the spirit out of it he's i not i take your point i mean i've always thought one of the things you do actually want from an owner is not to be stupid and actually run the business badly so i'll give him that he hasn't he hasn't taken them into yes. um into massive <laughs> debt so there's that one thing they're not in massive debt they don't own five hundred <laughs> oh, million pounds in picks or whatever the glazers owe but apart from that it's hard to see too many
1: positives I think we'll end on that. (laughs) Um, We'll call that a negative, shall we? Um, But thanks everyone for their suggestion. Plenty to look forward to. Yeah, I've been told, so I'm just moving swiftly on to be perfectly honest. Um, A couple of big games, a few big games to to talk about in the Premier League on Monday. Uh, Leicester playing Liverpool, we'll be talking about that. Manchester City against Spurs as well. Whether we see a raft of positive coronavirus tests and some of the big players in the league aren't even involved. Uh, is yet to be seen as we record this on Thursday morning I'm sure we'll have results by Saturday afternoon on Monday we'll be running through the results of the weekend's games as well so we will see you then but thank you for being with us my thanks uh, to Tom Clark Jonathan Northcroft and Gregor Robertson and a reminder you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football go online at searchthetimes.co.uk forward slash the game you'll get yourself one month three we'll be back with all that good Premier league stuff on monday we'll see you then
0: when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer